You you know the when when we read something in high school, we really never read it. I, it makes me so sad. You know, on on Parents' Day in college, when parents come and they talk about the curriculum, they're glad their kids are doing something. I remember, I think I probably told you this once. A father came and said, when he learned that his son was reading Moby Dick, and he said, "I read Moby Dick. I know I know Moby Dick." And the thought that went through my head, I didn't say it obviously, but was, "You don't know Moby Dick." The sad thing is, he won't go back and read it. No, who reads a book like that in high school? Who can begin to comprehend the depths of a book like that? That you guys are doing this, to me, is pretty amazing. Anyway, there's a tree ahead of you. Hawthorne's, what he does in that book, and I'm going to give this away, but I'm not going to tell you, so you have to read. Even if you're away on trips. Um, um, Hawthorne's going back to the founding generation. This um, self-righteous, condemning, black-white, Calvinistic view that is so much a part of the American character, we've been talking about it forever here, uh, how easy it is to make judgments against people, you know, when they sin, when they do something wrong. Um, but he's doing something that the epic poets did. Hawthorne would have known that. You know that every epic poet that we've read takes his past and carries it forward and transforms it. I've suggested he redeems it. Homer, Homer does that from the Iliad, the Odyssey. The Odyssey is looking back to the Iliad. Virgil does it with Homer. He takes both the Iliad and the Odyssey and incorporates them in his work. Dante does it with Homer and Virgil. You know that Virgil's his guide. One of the, um, one of the defining qualities of the epic is taking the past, receiving it, carrying forward, and redeeming it as he goes. It's like God in the world. It's exactly like Boethius. God in the world trying to bring a good out of something. So the epic always deals with a, some wrong in the past. It has this longing it, to get rid of it. Every epic is troubled by the past. We're going to see that in, the, in uh, Shakespeare, Anthony and Claypat in, in spades. Sh um, Hawthorne's doing that in Scarlet Letter. So he's going back to the founding generation when we were founding, but he's changing it. So you have to read to see what he does. He's bringing to it, I can't tell you. Let me leave it there. He, he's bringing something to it. Let me leave it there. So um, read it. You'll enjoy it. Um, the, the, the chapter that opens the Scarlet Letter is called The Custom House. It's, it's Chaucer, Faulkner, who am I talking about? It's Hawthorne speaking in his own voice about a job that he was currently in until the election kicked him out. So it's a little bit about the spoil systems. He's a Democrat, the Whigs have come into power, he's got to leave, but he was a custom house surveyor. So he lays out this world, most readers blow it off. You know, because it's so different from the Scarlet Letter story. Scarlet Letter story is a romance. Strange things happen there. In the Custom House, we're in a very prosaic, modern, business-like world. And you have, you, have to take, you have to read it and not blow it off, because if you read it seriously, you'll see Hawthorne is saying something about our present. And it's important to see the contrast between the Custom House and the Scarlet Letter story. Okay, very, very important. 
And he's actually laying down, this is really important, he's actually laying down some principles of interpretation. Hawthorne's going to make clear what a classical work is, a, a realist classical, and a romance. So that late, late in the custom out. So we know going into the Scarlet Letter what we're reading, and in some sense how to read it. <clears throat> so don't just you know, act like, oh, this is all business stuff. Who wants to read this stuff? People in the business world. Anyway, it's a good book, and you should enjoy it. It's, it's our beginnings. It's our beginnings. It's, it, it's been distressful for me to read it because I'm looking at something on our American character. Here's the, when, I, when I look at American politics today, I can see no difference between American politics and the self-righteousness behind them and our founding. So, it, it's another view on our on us and you know our American character. So, I, I hope you enjoy it. It's a, it's a, it's a great work. Yeah, yeah. I was, I'm repeating what I said last week too. It's if you've been to Salem, Massachusetts, you it's absolutely it gives your perspective. On it. The custom house is still standing. It's two blocks away from the witches cemeteries. I mean, you you're there. I mean, very yeah. few places like that exist, I think. Yeah. 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 One of the nice things about Scarlet Letter is it's not um, just a historical landmark. We're actually in the people. I mean, like all the works that we've read, we're involved. We become one with them. We step into the story. And we live with the, self, the same self-righteousness that burned the witches, you know, that condemned... I mean, in the opening scene, just to give an example, and then I want to because I want to leave this for you guys. When the book opens, Hester's coming out, and these five women are talking, and you can imagine what they're saying. Um, vicious, vicious women, just mean-spirited, and one of them says, the men have been too light. They've let this woman off. If they had their will, one of them said she'd be dead. And one of them said she would take a branding iron and burn, because she's wearing a scarlet A for adultery. That's going to be her stigma. She's got to carry that around as long as she's in that community. And Hester's not going anywhere. She believes that she, the only way to work off her sin is by bearing the burden there. Um, so she's got to wear it. One of the women says if she really got what she deserved, we would take a heating branding iron and brand that A in her forehead. So we're actually, so it's not just looking at a, you know, historic landmark. We're back with those people, living with them, and um, we're in the heart of Hester, and whoever the father was, I can't say anything here, whoever, whoever fathered that child, and whatever's going to happen at the end, and you have to read it to find out. <laughs> Next thing, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna call Netflix to see if there's a sudden rush on the movie. It's <laughs> <laughs> <And> Scarlet Letter. <laughs> okay. Any any prayers? You turn them on, Doc. Are they already on? They're on. They're already recording. Any prayers today? I know. Remember the poor souls in purgatory and oh, good. All Saints Day, yeah, hoping yeah, that yeah. they'll soon be saints. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you said that. 
In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, <clears throat> thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself to us in Mass. For this celebration, it's a reminder, actually a call to participate in um, the joy of the saints, um, all those who are with you, and hopefully those in purgatory who are on their way. Um, let our prayers help them, speed them. One of the beliefs at the center of our faith is that the prayers of um, people we don't even know help us. Um, I was so grateful for Father's um, way of putting it about um, Teresa, that um, she'll be more active in heaven helping people on earth. I believe that, always have. Love doesn't stop when can't if you're a God of love. It's just hard for me to imagine people who love others when they leave this world and don't <coughs> carry that love with them, are not doing something with God. So let our own love of them speed them and help us to be open to whatever prayers, whatever work, whatever intercessory activities, wishes, doings, help us. Um, <coughs> And everything we do, help us to genuinely believe that we are with you in your kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Um, that we are a part of your kingdom, help us to make it real while we're here. Bring it to others, most of all with each other. I ask a special blessing on um, Bruce and Debbie on their travels. Keep them safe. Watch over the child and let the delivery go well. Um, Give the doctors sure hands and um, help the mom and dad um, have quiet hearts and trust. Um, protected be with it, please. We offer all of these prayers in you, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Can you all pick out the the uh, May the May poem? <coughs> I, this came to mind, mind because of Helena, um, because of what we've been saying about her, her virginity and the extraordinary love that she brings to everything she does, most of all to Bertram. So I thought it would be appropriate to um, read a poem um, about Mary. Uh, about's not the right word, but... Um, Hopkins, whom we've already read, you know we've done The Wind Hover and Kingfisher's Catch Fire and we did The Wreck of the Dutchland, actually. Wow. Impressive. Wow. You know that I think that that's probably the most difficult poem in the English language. <coughs> These are two of his poems on Mary. Okay? I'm going to read the shorter one today. May Magnificat. <coughs> Let me just say this so I don't have to comment on it afterwards. You just read it and let it let you enjoy it. Um, it's a celebration of Mary, but in some sense it's a celebration of her in nature. Okay. Um, the pagans were aware of seasons. They, they were um, they shaped their way of looking that life was cyclical. 
um, summer came, it was followed by fall, and then winter, um, things died, and spring things came back to life. So that was just a part of their, they were very much steeped, defined by a sense of cycles to things. It informed all that they did. So spring would have been a time of celebration for them, but they had no idea that a God would enter the, our world as a way of atoning for our sins and answer all the crimes of the past that the pagans could never get rid of. It was a great struggle for the pagans, <coughs> the burdens that they inherited from the past. Um, a God came into the world to answer those sins, and he only did it through the obedience of a woman who gave herself completely to God. She was a virgin. She said yes um, to Gabriel. So in her we, is an image of somebody, a woman, so completely giving herself to God that she allows Christ, is the means by which Christ comes into the world. So spring is not just an image of a part of a cycle, it's an image of something maternal. Because remember, Christ is the Word. He's the means of creation. That's in John. He created everything. So it's, it, the, the Creator entered His own creation. The God that was greater than creation became small enough to come into it. So all these paradoxes develop when Christ comes into the world. But he's the, he's the means of creation. It's through him things are made. We believe that all, each of us is made in an image, the, the anima naturalite Christianity, the naturally Christian soul. If we're made in the image of God, it's got to be in the image of Christ. When reading Dante, you remember that the closer Dante got to God, the more resemblances to Christ he kept coming across everywhere. Um, Mary resembled him. Um, Benedict resembled him. How can it not be? The, the, the paradox was each one of those persons maintained their individuality and still resembled Christ. So he's the word, the means of creation. Mary was the means of bringing. So what she does is infinitely deepen this sense of something maternal to nature. That nature is mothering, nurturing, springing forth. She gives it a different dimension, okay? And Hopkins is, is playing on that here, speaking to that here, okay? <clears throat> the main magnificat. And notice in the second line, this would mean something to those of you who've been doing this from the beginning. Muse, remember that all epic poems, all epic poems begin with an invocation to the muse. The muse was the source of inspiration to the gods. So when he says, and I muse at that, I, I, he, he's undoubtedly playing on a pun, he's making a pun, that Mary's alive in him, and it's through him that she's coming in this poem. Okay. May is Mary's month, and I muse at that and wonder why. Her feasts follow reason, dated due to season. Candlemas, Lady Day. But the Lady Month May, why fasten that upon her with a feasting in her honor? Is it only its being brighter than the most or must, or must delight her? Is it opportunist and flowers find soonest? Does it take it ready to take advantage of things, bring things in? Ask of her, the Mighty Mother. Her reply puts this other question What is spring? Growth in everything. 
flesh and fleece, fur and feather, grass and green world all together. Star-eyed, strawberry-breasted, throstled above her nested, cluster of bugle blue eggs, thin forms and warms the life within. It's an image of a bird um, warming the eggs to prepare them to hatch, to come to life. And bird and blossoms swell in sod or sheath or shell, all things rising, all things sizing. Mary sees, sympathizing, with that world of good, nature's motherhood. Their magnifying of each kind with delight calls to mind. Now she did in her store magnify the Lord. <coughs> well, but there was more than this. Spring's universal bliss, much had much to say to offering Mary May. When drop of blood and foam dapple bloom lights the orchard apple, and thicket and thorpe are merry with silver surfed cherry, and azuring over gray ball makes wood banks and breaks wash wet like lakes, and magic cuckoo call, cuckoo call, caps, clears, and clinches all. This ecstasy all through mothering earth tells Mary her mirth to Christ's birth to remember an exaltation in God who was her salvation. She's an image of bringing everything to life and it's feminine. Um, it brings everything to life. It gives us a reason for joy. I keep harping on this. You know in the way that we look at our world today that's less and less happening. We don't take joy or not as much of a joy in nature. A lot of people don't. But Hopkins is um, saying it's all there in spring, particularly in spring when things return to life. Um, it's the source of Christ in us. It's Mary. Um, the way to Christ. Okay. Um, today I want to bring all this work that we've been doing um, on the threshold of modernity to its close. See if I can sum this all up. Sorry, Mike. Um... um Boy, what eye operations can do to you. Okay, two, I want to just do, um, say a few brief words about um, All's Well and um, Helena and Merchant and Portia. Um, remember that when we, when we started All's Well, we saw that the French court was in decay. It's a dying world. The king is sick and dying. Beyond help. None of the modern physicians can help him. They've tried and failed. Um, when, the, when the play opens, um, when the play opens, we get a sense of something incestuous about this world. The Countess says, remember I've said this forever, the opening lines of Shakespeare give the play away, always. The opening lines and the opening scene are like a miniature view of everything that's gonna take place. It's like a part in which we glimpse the whole. Okay. Countess, in delivering my son from me, something that a mother does when she brings a child forth, in delivering my son from me, I bury a second husband her son has been like a husband, or she's already lost her husband. Um, 
and there's play on those words and, and allusions um, t to the fact that the king is dying and nobody can heal him. So in the opening scene, we have an image of a court in decay. The king's dying. The countess has lost her husband. Bertram's lost his father. Helen had just lost her father, who was this great physician who passed on his inheritance to her. The relationship there is like Portia to her father. <coughs> um, so the court's in decay, everybody's dying. The men go off to war, not in defense of the state, but in, in a spirit of vainglory. They're going off to earn glory for themselves. So a sense of national identity, identity as a people, is crumbling. Helena loves Bertram, she makes that clear. Bertram will have nothing to do with her because she's of an inferior class. So we're, we're right, right away, we're aware that there's something unnatural in an aristocratic regime because it, it puts itself at odds with nature and love. Because love shouldn't, shouldn't be confined to class differences. If, if Bertram or Helena loved Bertram and he had his head on, he'd love her. Um, but he doesn't. Um, he scorns her because she's beneath him. So there are things wrong in the court. <coughs> Helena um, goes to Bertram, or I mean the king, as you remember, and offers to heal him and risks her life because he says, what are you going to, what are you going to put up for it? Because he, he, he feels, this is the pride of a man, a king, because he's tried again and if he tries again he's going to look <coughs> like a fool. So she risks her life, completely risks her life. If she fails, she dies. Um, and I read that passage, I'm not going to read it again, remember where she and the king are negotiating and suddenly they slip into rhyme. We talked about the rhyme, that just like we did in Chaucer. The presence of that rhyme is a reminder that there's some good in the background, some order, some beauty um, that's, that's taking place, even if people can't see it. She cures the king, she gets Bertram as a choice, and he runs off. <coughs> She goes to follow him, she meets his conditions, which are impossible, and she comes back and marries. And so she's the means of introducing um, not only a healing for the king, but a healing of something unnatural in the regime. She's bringing in something to soften those, those class stratification, those class lines. So she's transformative. What she does is, is bring in this power capable of changing a regime. She has no interest She's not a feminist. She has no interest in, has no political ambitions. There's nothing in her that aspires to political power or image or wealth or she loves Bertram. Um, I don't want to go through the lines, but just remember, remember that passage when she's meditating on um, virginity and um, Crowley's has nothing good to say about virginity, remember, and the clown has nothing good to say about marriage. But sh these are her words, and I, wanna, I want you to hold on to them because I'm, I'm going to come to a major point about poetry in a minute. But she's talking with Crowley's, he's making fun of it, mocking it, and she suddenly meditates for a moment and she says, because he says, get rid of your virginity, it's, a, it's of no word. You, um, you, life can't come into the world unless you give it up, so give it up. Helena, not my virginity, yet there shall your master have a thousand loves, a mother, a mistress, a friend, a phoenix, a captain, an enemy, a guide, a goddess, 
sovereign counselor, a traitress, and a deer. She goes on with all of these um, countries. He will find everything in her. What we see from her lines is that she has a wholeness of love that's not contingent on the sexual act. So there doesn't have to be a sexual exchange. It's, it doesn't have to wait on her pleasing Bertram sexually or his pleasing her. This love is complete and entire in itself. She will bring that to him. And we all know that he's a blaggard and it raises the question, why, what in the world that you know, she could see? But I think I, if, if we don't see, if we don't look past that, I think we miss what Shakespeare's doing. Because remember, if you keep in mind Shakespeare's image of the cave, the, the greatest poets are the poets who show the very best and worst of us. The very best and worst. Christ didn't come here because we deserved it. He came here when we didn't deserve it. It's really clear that Shakespeare's showing us she can see something through the eyes of love. Remember, she has that third eye, that middle eye. She sees something through love that other people don't see. I mean, the, the, the supposition in my own mind is that this critical faculty that we have to look down on people gets in the way of our loving. So we can't, we can't love a person, even when they, in, to some mind, they don't deserve it. Christ asks, us, Christ asks us to love our enemies. We're supposed to love no matter what. Doesn't mean not doing anything, but it does mean loving. And she shows the nature of that love because she goes, this is not Griselda, it's not a passive acceptance. She gets very resourceful to answer those problems. So she has to give herself completely to this man. And, and as we read the play, all we see is that he less and less deserves it because he does all these stupid things. So Shakespeare, in one sense, is giving us an image in this woman of a Christ-like love. That I think the typical, Father James used to say this all the time. We want things now the way we want them. We deserve them. So often we go through life and we get angry at people because we think we deserve better. You know, it, it, our love of somebody is contingent upon whether we get what we want from them. I'll love you. I'll do this for you if you do this for me. I mean, it's a, it's a social contract theory. It's not love. So in Helena, he's giving us an image of this extraordinary woman, Christ-like, who, remember that, that passage I read, when he takes off, and she said, I'm the cause. You're, you're running away because of me. She takes the whole thing on herself. She doesn't blame him and say, what an idiot, you're a coward. He is. He's all those things. Um, she loves him, and she's going to meet these conditions, and she does. So in her, I think we find one of the most Christ-like images in the literature that we've read. And it's not an accident that she's the means of a beginning of a transformation in the French aristocracy. So Shakespeare's looking at um, a situation on the threshold of modernity, because remember, he lived in an aristocracy. France was an aristocracy. What he's doing is answering the disorders of the aristocracy. 150 years following, French Revolution, the American Revolution. Um, so he's right there, he understands the problems and he's, and from a Christian perspective, without ever mentioning Mary or Christ, he's giving us an image of this extraordinary woman um, and her extraordinary love. Portia is a different, very different woman but in her own way, in her own circumstances, just as extraordinary. Remember, um, Merchant of Venice takes place in Venice, 
Um, you remember what happens, it opens with Antonio being sad and all of the friends completely misreading him. Of course you're sad, if my ventures were, see I'd be sad too. And we know that the problem isn't ventures, it's something's wrong with Venice. People are too busy with work to hold on to friendships and friendships are suffering. As soon as Bassanio and Graziano come, Solari and Solano leave and it's clear that they're off to business. And from what Bassanio and, and, and Graziano say, it's really clear people don't see each other anymore because they're too preoccupied with business. Bassanio wants to borrow money, Antonio says he will, they go to Shylock and Shylock is willing to do it on condition of a bond. And um, it's there you remember, what the only line I want to uh, remind you of in uh, um, in Merchant of Venice is um, Grazio said, when Shylock says, um, I want a, bound, a, a pound of flesh as collateral for my loan, and Antonio says, of course, I go on my ships out, I'm fine. Bassanio um, says, no, you're not going to do that, and so Antonio says, I'm fine. Sherlock says, what's the matter with these Christian men? Sherlock? Sure. Huh? Sherlock? A pound of man's flesh taken from a man is not so estimable, profitable, neither as flesh of muttons, beasts, or goats. I say to buy his favor, I extend his friendship. If you'll take it, so if not, a Jew. It, the, the lines are offered innocently enough, but they're horrible. Um, what he's saying is, what's the worth of a pound of flesh? It won't bring in as much money as goats and muffin. And so at the center of this regime, because it's based on money, and exchanges, we see a, a demeaning of the human body. What's it worth? You abortions. I mean, we, we're in the midst of the, of the worst holocaust in history. The worst holocaust in history, by far. The, what happened with Germany and the Jews doesn't come close to what's going on today. It's the worst holocaust in history. For for affluence and comfort and convenience. That's our world. It's the defining aspirations of our world. So here at the beginning, Shakespeare's already aware that the very nature of the commercial regime, remember it's called the sterile city. It breeds money. There are no families. They're breaking down. Jessica leads, runs away from her father. And Gobo doesn't even know his son. So traditional relationships, marriages, are all breaking down because of this preoccupation for wealth and comfort and money. And we see what happens. The, the crisis of the play is when um, Antonio's ships don't come in, Shylock takes him to court, and you know the, the point, and this is the central point of Merchant. Everybody tries to persuade Shylock to give up his bond. He says, curse on your city's freedom. Because he knows if, if, if you don't hold the bond, if you... Um, Wave it. Um, Venice dies. Because if you do wave the bonds, who's going to enter into contracts? Who's going who's to invest? Nobody. Um, the Christians on the other side say, show mercy, do away with the bond. If you do that, the city's dead. Because if you take away the bond again, who's going to risk? So what Portia has to do, remember, is hold on to the bond, um, but in a way that doesn't 
support Shylock because we know that Shylock's motive is to kill Antonia. It's not justice. Is everybody clear? That's what she's got to do. She's got to find a way of resolving those extremes because if she doesn't, the commercial regime and the merchant, i.e. Antonio, are dead. So there's something lethal, absolutely lethal at the center of this regime. Laws can be cruel. And letting them go can be just as cruel because it encourages enabling. Take away the protections of the law, people enable. So the, her, this is interesting, this is a trial. Her trial, she's, not, she's on trial. Her trial is she has to resolve those oppositions, okay? Do you remember what she did, how she did it? It's important to remember this. She had to hold on to the bond and yet read it in a way that wouldn't justify Shylock because Shylock's real motive is murder. He wants to get Antonia out of the way. Do you remember? Mm-hmm. Yeah. She, she said the, the bond was for a pound of flesh but no blood. Yeah. So. Good. Good bad. She said, you can, and by the way, just before, if you've, watched, if you've ever watched the scene, you know that Shylock is licking his lips. He's, he's got the knife and the hanky in. I mean, he just, he's ready to kill him. It's, it's, it's vicious. It's mean to watch. Um, and she says, it comes to a point, she says, now be sure you don't drop one or spill one drop of blood. It takes it away. I hope everybody sees this. Well, how is she different from anybody in Venice? Because she sees the true end of the law. You, the end of the law isn't to break it, because if you take the law away, you give up its protections. If you do away with it in mercy, it's gone. You open all sorts of problems. Think about our modern world with immigrants today, or any law. She's got to hold on to that law, but work to achieve its end. The end of the law is the good of the human person. So what she does is for Shylock's good and Antonio's. So it's an act of interpretation in love. If she didn't have, or put it differently, we know that Portia's from Belmont. She was raised there. She was absolutely obedient to her father. That's a condition of her goodness. As soon as Bassanio wins the lottery, she gives everything she has to him. Bassanio risked everything he had. He who, he who hazards all he has, it's the leaden one, he chooses that. He risks everything for her. As soon as he chooses her, she gives everything that she has to him. And we know that she's got a fortune. So she's given up everything. When she goes, what are her motives in what she does? Self-interest, pride, being better than an image, wealth, all the things that define Venice. To put it another way, could a woman who, who went to law school in Venice have done what Portia did? I'm going to say no. I mean, people may disagree, but I'd say no. Because once you enter into that world and you define yourself by rivalry, competition, getting ahead, showing yourself, however good your motives are, there's something else there. What she brings to what she does is a love for her husband and his friend. She completely effaces herself. She puts on a man's thing and... So there's a wisdom, a love of law, an obedience to your father, an understanding of the ends of the law that people in Venice have no clue about. Remember, she loves philosophy. It's one of the things she, in, in the opening lines on her, it's clear she's read Aristotle. 
She said, living in the mean is not an easy thing to do. So once again, and the other, I, I don't want to read it now, but the other image that I wanted you all to remember when we think about Merchant of Venice is um, when they're in the courtroom scene and um, they're about ready to give the knife to Shylock, Bassanio objection says, Antonio, I'm married to a wife which is as dear to me as life itself, but life itself, my wife and all the world are not with me esteemed above thy life. You all remember that, I hope. Mm -hmm. I would lose all, sacrifice them all, my wife. But life itself, my wife and all the world are not with me esteemed above thy life. What wife would be glad to hear that? Portia says, your wife would give you little thanks for that if she were by to you make the offer. <laughs> Graziano, I have a wife who I protest I love. I wish she were in heaven. <laughs> um, to wish she would make, the, the wish would make an unquiet house, says Nerissa. So what we've got are this terrible lightness. I mean, Portia is the one who resolves this, who has the wisdom to answer this thing in a way nobody else has. But one of the things I, I, I want to just impress on everybody before we look, the men in this are light. The men in all's well were too light. There's something wrong with the men in every one of these plays. And it's women who come from outside that political world, stand outside of it, who bring something into it the men don't. And I'm going to say even women within the world. I mean, it's just, it's coming from outside. And it's in a woman, not man. She does it. Helen does it. So, in both instances, we're dealing with regimes on the threshold of modernity. Shakespeare is looking forward to the modern world. Um, the Christian Catholic Middle Ages are behind. And we're watching these, these men. They're not very flattering. And these women doing these remarkable things. So, that's... I want to go to uh, Othello now and look at the dark side, but just any, just very quickly, any questions about these two plays before we go ahead? We've already done them, so I don't want to spend a lot of time, but I want to look at Othello because Othello's the tragic aspect. In this play, we're going to see a man kill his wife. The woman's going to be terribly vulnerable. She's going to die. And you've got Iago doing all of these things. Um, and I've said this before, there's not another play in Shakespeare in which e evil is so capable of insinuating itself in every single aspect of the world. There's not a character in Othello that Iago doesn't work on. Shakespeare is saying there's something, something about the modern commercial regime that invites a place, makes a place for evil to work far more than it does in other regimes. So I want to look at that. But before we do anything on on uh, Merchant or All's Well, <clears throat> both remarkable women. Okay. <laughs> One last turn on poetry. One last turn. Do we? I didn't talk about this. The. Othello's line, I'm rude of speech. Yeah, let's go. Um, if you've got Othello, if you don't, if you just hold on and listen. This is, as you can imagine for me, because I've been hitting you over the head with poetry for several years now, 
there's just a couple of things that I want to look at in Othello. Remember, these are just summary. I want to go back and review. This is the threshold of the modern world. We've seen two comedies dealing with this threshold. We're, we're entering the modern world, and Shakespeare's aware of it. Othello um, is dealing with Venice, but it's tragic. So remember, and I've been saying this again and again, if you remember Plato's cave, all of us are in this cave. We take the shadows in front of us for reality when they're not. But the cave changes according to the regime, right? Venice is a commercial republic. Paris, the court of Paris, is a monarchy. It's aristocratic. So it's a different aspect of the cave, but it's still the cave. Shakespeare's genius is that he could go to all these different regimes and see what the issue was that was peculiar to that regime. We just saw it in Helen and all's well. We just saw it with Portia in Merchant. Now we're going to see it again under a tragic aspect with Othello. Is that clear? He had that paradigm, that platonic paradigm in his mind. It helped him see through every regime. That's, that's why he's so Catholic and why he's so profound. He understands people according to their, what's the problem cured to a people? What's keeping it from getting it out of the cave? What are they not seeing at the center? So in Othello, we're back at, in Venice, except this is Venice under its tragic aspect. Um, so very, very quickly, I want to I touch on, to me, what is one of the most important things, and it's the easiest thing to overlook. Remember what I've said over and over and over again, don't overlook the obvious. One of the great gems of wisdom given to me by one of my favorite teachers, never overlook the obvious, because the greatest wisdom is always right there in front of us. Don't, don't ever overlook the obvious. You know at the beginning of Othello, Rodrigo says to Iago, I gave you my purse strings as a, guarantee, as a, as a down payment on your being successful in, in um, my wooing of Desdemona. Rodrigo wants to get to Desdemona. So the, the measure, once again, of human worth of value is money. Iago's had the purse strings and, and Rodrigo has just learned Desdemona's eloped with Othello and he's outraged. So the play opens again. You've got my purse strings, the importance of money. Too, too much. It has a claim on people's lives and it's going to work its harm here. So Rodrigo and um, Iago go through the city crying, robbery, robbery. Desdemona's eloped, she's run away. They go to Brabantio's house and Brabantio says um, two important things here. He, he says, um, what tellest me thou of robbing? This is Venice, my house is not a grange. What does that say about Venice? Very quickly. Hmm? This, what, why are you telling me of robbing? This is Venice, my house is not a grange. What's the assumption about Venice at this point, just on those lines? Robbery occurs all the time. Hmm? Robbery occurs all the time. Oh, it doesn't. Just oh, the opposite. Oh. Robbery never occurs. Oh. This is the, the assumption is this is a place of law and order. Oh, okay. This doesn't happen here. This isn't this, Granges where this is, that is this is a humane, civilized world. 
by, this, is the begin, this is the beginning of modern, educated Europe, the West. The Renaissance came out of Italy, moved for everybody. Venice is a model of the well-educated city, and the assumption is, as, if you're educated, sin goes away, crime goes away. By the way, how successful? How has history confirmed that fact in America? <laughs> well, but I'm thinking America's the leader. I mean, you, I hope everybody's seen the irony of that. William Buckley once said, I, God, I just love that man. William Buckley once said, I'd rather go down the, the pages of a telephone book and stop on a name and elect that man president before I would elect an educated man as president. <laughs> and you know that Buckley was tremendous. I mean, he knew what education did to people. I mean, it, for the most part, it, make, it makes a lot of people worse. Because, particularly in this regime, because what are the, what are the driving forces here? What does capitalism mean? Sorry if you can't read this. What does capitalism mean? What does capitalism mean? It comes from the Latin caput, head. Head. The defining qualities of the commercial regime are intellect, resourcefulness, risking, so that a merchant, right? To be an entrepreneur, you have to have a good mind, you have to be willing to risk, and you have to be resourceful. So the, the dominant characteristics of the commercial regime are intellectual. What's the opposite of those? Cunning, cheating, missing one, cunning, cheating. Stupidity. Hmm? Well, you say intellect, the opposite is stupidity. Stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> Except the opposite, I mean, if you look I mean, at Iago, is, God, it's just cunning, cunning, cunning devious, dishonest. Um, that is. <laughs> You remember that angels are intellects, they have no bodies. When man goes wrong like an angel, he lives too much in his head. There's something about the commercial regime that um, courage is giving too great an importance to the intellect at the expense of the heart, you know, other things, the body. So Brabantio's outrage, he says, this is Venice. These things don't happen here. Venice is the city of law and order. It's not a place of crime. What we're going to find out when we get to Cyprus is the underside of that. That's where Iago does its work. That is going to show us, metaphorically, that whole underworld of Venice that Venice does not want to look at. Brabantio will go on to, in a minute to say, Strike on the tinder, ho, give me a taper, call up my people. This accident is not unlike my dream. Belief of it oppresses me already. If he'd had that dream and Desdemona had not to have eloped that night, would he have paid any attention to his dream? Absolutely not, because it's subrational. This is a world in which people equate control with reason. The more you can understand something, the more control you have over it. It is, it is the modern paradigm of the enlightenment world. 
when the Enlightenment, when, you know, a couple of centuries after the Copernican Revolution, when the Enlightenment mindset gets formed, Voltaire and people like that, those people looked at religion as superstition. They all believed that you get religion out of the picture, that reason is capable of dealing with everything itself. That's one of the modern assumptions, even today. The secular utopia, so socialism, the secular utopia. Get superstition, get religion out, reason is capable of creating this utopian world. No divisions, no marginalized, everybody equal, we will achieve a peace. Those are the presumptions of the modern world. So right here in the beginning, we're seeing that this is a city of law and order. It makes no place for the irrational dreams or Brabantio can't fathom that. And we also know that it has a place because when Othello recounts the, the marriage with um, Desdemona, he recalls the moment when, or the times when he used to visit their house and tell her these stories about his, his fights with the men with heads behold their shoulders and these strange creatures. And Desdemona was so taken, his way of describing it, so taken that she felt sorry for him, pity. And he did pity her. That was the basis of their love for each other. She's drawn to the imaginative, to the romantic. It's as if the rational regime cannot fulfill all man's desires for mystery or something. She's so taken by all these things that are so different from what goes on in her own world. So we know that this rational regime is a regime of law and order, that the irrational isn't given its place, or the demonic, or everything that's going to happen in Cyprus. They don't deal with it. And what happens when we go to Cyprus? Iago's going to take everybody apart. Just put them, it's, I mean, it's just sad to watch what he does with everybody. Here's the line that I wanted to go to. Brabantio is so furious to learn that Othello has eloped with his daughter that he goes to the Senate expecting the Senate to back him up as a father. We've already seen in the Venetian regime the, the, the authority of the father's gone. It's not there. It wasn't there in Merchant, it's not here. It was in Belmont, outside of that, but not in the commercial regime. Where are you? Act one, actually. I'm going to get there, Linda. Um, um, no, wherever you were reading. I just said I, I'll get there. Um, Brabantio hears this, that Othello's married his daughter. He wants to go to the Senate, expecting the Senate to support him, because he's one of the wealthiest figures, the most powerful figures in Venice. So they gather, they gather together and they go to get Othello and then there's a moment when there's this confrontation between Brabantio and Othello and the senators. This is an act one, scene two, or sorry, yeah, act one, scene three, act one, scene three, about line 80. Um, the, now, a couple of the ironies. One is, um, Othello says, when these men are confronting each other, this is about line 60, keep up your bright swords for the duel will rust them. Remember that line, keep up your bright swords for the duel will rust them. Good senor, you show more command with years than with your weapons. He has more respect for their age than he does their power. He's a good man. He doesn't want to fight. He, re he respects them too much, number one. Second irony is, um, Brabantio expects to get support from the magistrates, 
It's a, it's a support he doesn't get because Othello's the most powerful soldier there. They want him to lead the troops against the Turks who are coming on Cyprus. So here's the father's authority and the expectation that he's going to get the support of the Senate. Othello's their most valuable warrior. There's no way they're going to keep him from... So the, 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 the interests of the commercial regime overweigh the importance of a family. Okay? Now here's where I wanted to go. Othello has just said, keep up your bright swords for the duel arrest them. Good Signor, you shall more commend with years than with your weapon. In a moment, he's going to be asked to defend himself and explain what happened. And he says this, Act 1, Scene 3, about line, line 80. Most potent, grave, and reverend seniors, my very noble and approved good masters, that I have taken away this old man's daughter is most true. True, I have married her. The very head and font of my offending hath this extent. No more. He's broken no law. He's married her. He has, he's offering himself for justice. This very head and front of my offending hath this extent, no more. Rude am I in speech, and little blessed with the soft phrase of peace. And he goes on. Hold on to that. Rude, rude am I in speech. That's a nothing line. I think it's one of the most profound in the world. Now hold on to that. Othello's come from Africa, most likely. He's, he was more. Islam, probably, Moorish. Mm -hmm. He's converted to, to Christianity. Iago refers to his baptism. So he's converted to Christianity. It has to have been in recent time, because he's, he's only here for a while. He's from a barbaric world. He's a warrior. All he knows is fighting, and all he knows is his honor as a, as a warrior. And he's going to come up against this Iago, who does nothing but use his mind. And the way he uses his mind is going to undo Othello. Okay? But the point I want to make right now is secondary to these. It's that he says, I'm rude of speech. He's not educated. He doesn't come from an educated culture. Venice is a model of the, of the, of the liberal city of the modern world. Become educated and articulate and, and you'll be free. <coughs> Venice is an image of that. Okay? Othello's just coming in and said, rude of speech I am. Now listen to these lines. The one, put up your bright swords for the dual rest them. They set off for Cyprus. Um, Desdemona and Othello are separated. She gets there with Iago. Othello comes afterwards. And when Othello and Desdemona meet, these are his words. Othello, oh my fair warrior, Desdemona, my dear Othello, Othello, it gives me wonder, great is my content, to see you here before me, O oh, my soul's joy. If after every tempest comes such calms, may the winds blow till they have wakened death. And let the laboring bark climb hills of seas, Olympus high, and duck again as low as hells from heaven. If it were now to die, t'were now to be most happy, for I fear my soul hath her content so absolute that not another comfort like to this succeeds in unknown fate. Desdemona, the heavens forbid, but that our loves and comforts should increase even as our days do grow. Amen to that, sweet powers. I cannot speak enough of discontent. It stops me here. It is too much of joy, and this and this the greatest discords be. The greatest discords, he kisses her and kisses her again. 
when the fights start in shortly that night, um, um, Cassio is going to be demoted, and Iago is going to suggest that he go to De Cassio go to Desdemona and to make an appeal. She goes to Desdemona goes to Othello to appeal on behalf of Cassio, and she keeps pressing him. And at one point, he says to her, um, "Prithee, no more. Stop. Let him come when he will. I will deny thee nothing." And a minute later, when he watches her leave, he says, Excellent wretch, perdition catch my soul, but I do love thee, and when I love thee not, chaos is come again. Now hold on for a minute, because this seems like a minor point, but it's not. Um, in my reading of Shakespeare, I am not aware, not even Romeo, who's an adolescent, I'm not aware of another lover in Shakespeare who speaks lines that come close to this. And we know that he's going to kill Desdemona. It's going to end with his killing her. The love this man has for her is extraordinary and extraordinarily deep. He's just expressed some of the most powerful lines in all of Shakespeare, and it comes from a man who's uneducated and says, rude am I of speech. He cannot articulate. So here's my question, and it's a very, you know me. You, you know, this is very serious with me. What's going on? He says, I, I'm inarticulate, I'm rude of speech. I, he's, he doesn't come from an educated world. E either Shakespeare's window dressing, he's, um, what's that word? Um, when you dress him? Embellishing. Up. Embellishing. Either he's window dressing, he's embellishing, in which case he's a liar. And the, the take on Shakespeare on the part of most philosophers, I've said this before, Hobbes, who was the, the beginning of the social contract theorists, called poets liars. Plato called poets liars. The, the, the challenge of Plato, remember, was I'll only let those poets who, who can see the universal things into the, into the cave, or out of the cave, into the good city. Because poets, for the most part, are liars. And some people say, here's a good example, here's this jerk who's a, who's a what's the <clears throat> word, um, in jockey, or jock, belongs in a male locker room, you know, with all of his accomplishments. He's, a, he's an athlete, he's a, he's a warrior. Warriors are better than athletes, warriors fight. He's a warrior. Um, Iago's going to undo him with his head, because Othello has no experience in dealing with the mind. He'll actually take him apart. But here in this scene, this warrior from another culture says, I'm rude of speech, and yet he speaks these lines of extraordinary beauty. So what is Shakespeare doing? Is he just dressing things up? Is poetry just... something deeper in him. Huh? Even though he, on the outside or at the conscious level, he is able to... He knows his limitations. He who? Othello. Othello. And he knows his limitations so that... But it, there's a humility in that, that has act, he has access to something deeper in himself. And, those, and those, that's where those words come from. And I would think that that's when he's able to say something. Well, the question is, Tom, could, the question is, could, could Othello, you, I couldn't agree more that this is something deeper, could Othello ever have given those words to those depths, or is that it's something only the poet can do, that Shakespeare does it? Could, could you even ever imagine Othello speaking those words? 
put up your bright swords for the dew, the dew will rest, rust them. What he's saying there, by the way, if it, put up your, that is, there's going to be a confrontation. He's saying, put your swords back. Because he knows if they come out, they're not going to be used. The dew will rust them. He, he, he's, he's imaging a masculine principle of efficiency. Truly, this efficiency that a commander has got to have. Because the last thing he wants to do is waste his troops or their armaments. I mean, it's a perfect rendering of that masculine principle of efficiency. He's got to get, he's got to save his men, he's got to save his army, that, because that's what he does. Put up your, but listen to the words. Put up your bright swords, lest the dew rust them. I, I, what I got from that is that you don't have to be this educated, wealthy group of people to um, have a certain sensitivity, and maybe being educated and wealthy and thinking that you know all this stuff blinds you to a certain sensitivity, and that he, not being well-educated, hasn't been blinded to those sensitivities, so that he can see, uh, while his, his speech is, you know, you said that, that could you ever imagine him saying these things? Perhaps not the words, but the feelings he would have yeah. because he is a really good man. A really good man. Yeah. And, and he yeah. is, he's, I guess, open to, to hearing that. Whereas somebody who's very well educated and has, has all of this arrogant, you know, proud, arrogant fool right, myself. I know everything. Yes, yes, um, yes. And so they see nothing. Yes. This false self that, you know, the Tom is. Yeah, here, yes, here's, here's I, don't wanna, I don't wanna lose this. Either people are gonna look at this and say, window dressing, this is what Shakespeare does, it's all BS, thou can't do that. Or you say that what he's doing is speaking words that Othello never could ever in his life, ever. He doesn't have the vocabulary, the rhyme, the power of music, because these are put to, these are um, blank verse. So you either say he's window dressing or you say, only the poet can capture those things that sometimes men don't have words for. They're just not capable. In the last class, I was giving the example when Suzanne and I first met at Berkeley, and I, we used to sit at a table. She used to stalk me. I did that. I said that the other. The class just howled. She'd come looking. She'd come looking for. She she was she was a really good writer and a really good reader. I wasn't, and she'd come looking for me to ask me my response to a book and. She was a much better reader than I. We used to sit together, and there were these library cards that you know were Manila and long and heroin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would write notes to her, and I would be a little bit embarrassed having done it because I could never fight, never quite find the words to say. Mm -hmm. You know, you you just can't. I mean, here, let me put it differently. If 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 the word is the means of our creation, yeah. If Christ is the means, and we are in, in, uh, animus naturalitate Christian, the naturally Christian soul. If every one of us was made in the image of God, and the word is at the center of us, unspoken when we begin, it's there, and we learn to speak, we learn to, and hopefully we find our attunement with Christ, where whatever we speak is one with him, it's there. How many of us can get to that unspoken hidden word? For, for Shakespeare to put those words in Othello's mouth, 
isn't to say those are literally the words he would speak. What he's saying is, those are the words that express a beauty and an order and a virtue at the, at, at the heart of that man's soul. And there's no way he himself could have used words to get to it. The reason this is important, I want you to hear this. One of, one of the modern critics in literature is a Russian formalist called Bakhtin. Made great contribution to literary criticism in the modern world. He takes the position that the canonic genres, lyric, tragedy, comedy, are inferior to the novel because in the novel, the, the, it's a more open-ended form. It doesn't have to follow these verse practices. It's a more open-ended form, and so it's truer to life, and it gives a more faithful rendering of the words that people actually use in life. So the novelist tends to be, if you've read Tom Thumb, Huckleberry Finn, or... Faulkner, remember Faulkner when he'd come out in and out of black idioms and um, Bach, so Bach, but Bakhtin's an empiricist. He thinks that the, what a person actually says faithfully renders what that person feels. We know that's not so. Let a, let a husband get mad at his wife or a wife get mad at a husband. Are the words that we hurl at each other ever, do they ever get close to something underneath? I mean, we miss a lot, an awful lot. And I think particularly if we're trying to get close to what is Christ-like love. If the word is at the center of our soul, how easy is it to give it form, to speak in ourselves? So what I'm saying is that um, what Shakespeare's showing in this language is not a language that Othello can speak, because he can't. What he's doing is, is showing the beauty and the order and the truthfulness at the center of his soul, so that we can feel it there. Because if it were left to Othello, his words, we'd probably laugh at them. He'd trip on them, what he feels for her. There's no way. Are you following? Yes. So once again, I'm saying there is this prophetic quality to poetry in the greatest hands, because they're rare. But in the poets like this, we're being helped to see and feel things that lesser poets can't get us to. And no other kind of knowledge can. If you, let me, let me give just very briefly, quick. <coughs> I could have taken, I could have taken the lines of Helena when she was meeting with the king, and I could have taken those lines when Bertram took off and she took it all on herself. You know, she meditated and said it was her fault. Extraordinary lines. Let me take these in, instead, though. This is from one of the plays we just read or that we've just worked on. You'll recognize them. So it's, it's in Venice. The courtroom scene is underway. And um, Portia is going to make an, a last appeal to Shylock to avoid this crisis. He could have done it. He would not give up his wanting to kill Antonio. She says, Shylock, on what compulsion must I because she's asking for mercy. He, he's not going to give it. What compulsion? I'm not going to do it. Tell me that, Portia. These are the memorable lines. People love these lines. For This is from Portia. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute to awe and majesty. 
wherein does sit the dread and fear of kings, but mercy is above this sceptered sway, it is enthroned in the hearts of kings, it is an attribute of God himself. The earthly power doth then show likest God when mercy seasons justice. Therefore, Jew, though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy, and that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. I have spoken thus much to mitigate the justice of thy plea, which if thou follow, the strict court of Venice must needs give sentence against the merchant here. You know that when he doesn't, that whole justice that he wants is going to be turned against him. Um, but where do those lines come from? They're extraordinary. Can you hear anybody speaking those in a courtroom? They're put, wait, by the way, they're blank verse. They're, they're set to music. And remember, you all remember, this is a test. When she comes home, what are Lorenzo and Jessica doing? And she returns to Belmont. They're talking about the music of the spheres, the order, the harmony, the harmony of the universe. What, what's outside of Venice? Chance, contingency, hard things. Belmont, music, harmony. It's God's order. It's the beauty of creation. They're talking about the music of the spheres. And who walks in? Portia. And their words? Mark the music. I can remember saying that to you when we met. Why that stage? Because stage action, stage entrances, bodily movements speak. She comes in right at that moment. Mark the music. Why? Because she's an image of poetry itself. Everything she does. Can, can Christ do anything that isn't an expression of perfect beauty, perfect harmony, perfect truth, perfect order? In anything he said. So what Shakespeare's showing us in the poetry is that there is this inherent goodness in man. We, we can't always get to it in our own words, but it's there. It's the poet who helps us see it. Now one last thing, because it, it would have gone back to um, here. We didn't get to it today, but I'm going to do it next week for a minute. Remember when I said the modern influences were? Copernicus, Machiavellian, and the Reformation. Fundamental to every one of the reformers was the belief that man was corrupted, in essence, depraved. Could anybody holding that belief ever give words like the words Shakespeare gives to Othello? No, because what Othello, what Shakespeare is showing is they're inherent. They're, that's a beauty and order to the soul. Othello's words could never get to it. So there's this beauty um, and there's this nobility to man. We keep screwing it up. You know, we keep, well, wait, here, I go back. What's the, what's the modern image of man, high or low? I've asked this multiple times. What's the image of modern man, high or low? It's low, right? The, the image of, of man to the ancient world? High, it came from the gods. The image of man is low. We blow it off. We are light about it. We are, to me, sickeningly light. We give our, the best of ourselves away because in our modern world there's very little saying. There is this great nobility, this beauty to the human person. If we held that view, how, how possible would it be to have the millions of abortions that we're having? If man's made in the image of God, how, I mean, I, 
What woman says that today? She has no clue. I mean, that's not the way she sees things. If she did, it would be harder, be harder for a woman to make that choice, that this is an image of God. The, the presence of abortion is a reminder of how low we look at, the, the low value we place on our human lives, that it's that low. So here in Shakespeare, on the verge of the modern world, is this poet who, who can do these things because his image of man, tragic and comic book, is this greatness that man has. He's made in the image of God. There's this great glory to him. How many of us live lives believing that? Okay. I want to go to the end of Othello to just go over some passages, and then I've got some questions to leave you guys with, and we'll pick up here. When we... um, in Othello, when Iago starts working on him, um, Cassio's just been demoted, and um, um, Othello and Iago are together, and Iago says, My lord, um, did Michael Cassio, when you wooed my lady, know of your love? He did. Why do you think? But for the satisfaction of my thought, that is, I'm just thinking about it. God, oh God, this guy. <laughs> Othello, why thy thought, Iago? I did... I did not think he'd been acquainted with her. Oh, yes, and went between us very often. Indeed, indeed, I indeed discernest thou anything that? Is he not honest? Honest, my lord, honest? I, my lord, for aught I know, what dost thou think? Think, my lord, think? From this point on, for the next full act, probably next 200, 300 lines, thought and one of its cognates, thinking, thought, know, are going to reappear almost every other line. Because Shakespeare is making us aware that even though Othello has no clue, he's being introduced to a world of thought where this man of intellect is going to manipulate him into thinking that his wife has betrayed him. Othello is going to get outraged. I mean, he worked to such a point he said, prove it to me or I'll kill you. For, for you to even insinuate this to dishonor, he's, he's that angry. Prove it to me. The first proof Iago offers is, this is Act 3, Scene 3, about line 230. Um, Cassio and I were, they're soldiers, they were bunking, bunking together. Cassio put his leg over mine, he was dreaming and he was kissing Desdemona. And he reached over and kissed me. <laughs> so that's, that's proof. That's the first proof. If you remember the hanky scene, in the next scene, Desdemona's in, or I mean, Othello's in a sweat because he's, he's faced with the possibility that his wife has betrayed him. Desdemona comes in, takes her hanky out, sweats, wipes his brow, and drops it. Amelia picks it up, gives it to Iago. He's wanted it. Iago puts it in Cassio's room to start the plant. He's already putting things together. What is Iago doing? He's doing exactly this. Hold on to this. This is so important. He's doing exactly what Shakespeare does. He's putting on a play, putting everything in place. What's the difference? The out. The end of his play, his plotting, is the opposite of Shakespeare's. Shakespeare wants love and justice. Iago wants to destroy. So the play comes off, and the next proof is, um, Iago says, I'll give you oracular proof. So he tells Othello to watch. He goes with Cassio just after Bianca's left, and Cassio starts explaining his 
things going on with Bianca, the prostitute, the whore. Iago's feeding him lines, knowing Othello's watching. So Cassio starts laughing, taking the girl for, you know, for advantage that she wants to marry him, and Othello thinks that he's talking about Desdemona, and he's not. So I, I want you to think about that. This is, this is a giveaway on Venice. The two things that constitute a proof for Othello are um, Iago's description of the dream, that constitutes a proof. And the other is oracular evidence. He takes what is a stage play as proof when Iago's directing the stage play and the aim of the stage play is opposite to what Shakespeare. So we're watching an anti-poet element. Is that clear? It's against poetry, it's against beauty, it's against order, its aim is destruction. But he's doing exactly what the poet. Where are those influences in literature today that have that same end, to hold up something destructive in the way that it looks at human beings? I think about a lot of the horror movies and, you know. I'm gonna read this and then stop and leave you with a couple of questions. Iago and Othello go down on their knees and, here's a, and they vow a marriage. Othello's marriage to Desmond is forsworn. It's a, it's a, it's like it's the equivalent of a satanic mass. It takes it takes the place of Desdemona and Othello's marriage. They commit themselves, but they're now committed to vengeance on Desdemona. They talk. Iago sets this plan in motion where Rodrigo is going to kill Cassio when he comes out of Bianca's place after he spends the night with her. It all goes afoul. Othello thinks that Iago's taking care of Cassio. Cassio will actually escape. And during that scene, um, Othello comes to Desdemona to kill her. I just want to read these lines, and then I'd like to leave you with questions. And you have to answer them, even if you're away. <laughs> we have email these days, or, or text. That's true. Othello's leaning over... Desdemona. He thinks she's a whore, that she's given herself cheaply to men. He's outraged at betrayals. Remember, Iago's been using his mind, his intellect, to work on a man who's had, who's never, he's always had to face men in battle, physically. He's never had to deal with spiritual evil. This is crucial right now. He's an immigrant. He comes from another world. He's having to deal with spiritual evil. Um, Othello's leaning over Desdemona. There's a candle next to her bedside, and he looks at it and says, if I put it out, I can relight it. But if I, okay, so here are these lines. Othello's over Desdemona, um, intending to kill her because of this deep injustice. And notice the, the courtroom language. It is the cause, it is the cause, my soul. Let me not name it to you, you chase stars. It is the cause. Yet I'll not shed her blood nor scar that wider skin of hers than snow and smooth as monumental alabaster. Yet she must die, else she betray more men. Put out the light, and then put out the light. If I quench thee, thou flamish minister, I can again thy former light restore. He puts out this candle and light it. Should I repent me? But once put out thy light, thou cunningest patter of excelling nature, I know not where is that Promethean heat that can thy light relume. When I have plucked the rose, I cannot give it vital growth again. 
it must needs wither. I'll smell thee on the tree. He kisses her. O balmy breath that doth almost persuade justice to break her sword. He would deny justice. His love for her is so great. One more, one more, be thus when thou art dead, and I will kill thee and love thee after. One more, and that's the last. So sweet was ne'er so fatal. I must weep, but they are cruel tears. This sorrow's heavenly. It strikes it where it doth love. She wakes. Now, she'll wake up, and Othello will say, confess. You have a moment to confess. She doesn't know what's any need, any tells her that he's going to kill her, that she had this affair with Cassie, and she says, let me live a day, you know, give me time. He already, I mean, just hold on to this, because I, I want to be as fair as I can. He believes that she's a murderer, I mean, a, an adulteress, and he's pretty convinced. And right now she's saying no, and he's starting to let things out. What happened? Um, he says, confessed. Um, she asks for time. Um, he calls her a strumpet. Um, Amelia starts pressing, and Othello strangles her and seems to kill her. Okay, she seems dead already. Amelia comes in. She says, "Oh my good lord, yon foul murder done. What now?" There's this hysteria, and Othello says, "Cassio's dead," and Amelia says, "No, he's not." And suddenly, Othello says, "Not Cassio killed." Then murders out of tune, and sweet revenge grows hard. Now suddenly, something's wrong. And suddenly they hear Desdemona speaking. O falsely, falsely murdered. O Lord, what cry is that? Amelia rushes in. Othello's confused. What, what? Thought Cassio was dead. Thought um, Desdemona was dead. Amelia. Out alas, that was my lady's voice. Help, help, ho, help. O lady, speak again. Sweet Desdemona. O sweet mistress, speak. Desdemona. A guiltless death I die. Amelia, who has done this deed? Nobody. I myself, farewell. Commend me to my fine Lord. Now, hold on, because I just have a couple of questions. When we meet next, I'm going to read Othello's last lines before he kills himself. He'll say, extenuate nothing. Know that I, that I love deeply. Then you must speak of me that love not wisely, but too well, of one not easily jealous, but being wrought, perplexed in the extreme, of one whose hand, like the base Judean, Judas, threw a pearl away, richer than all his strength. Read that if you can. You can go online if you don't, but you should have the book. Othello seemed, or I mean, Desdemona seemed she was dead, and she seems to wake, and, and she's asked, who did this? And she says, nobody, I myself, commend me to my kind Lord. Does she come back from the dead? How are we to take these words? Is this a wife covering for her husband? As some women are thought to do? Or is there something more? Othello killed her. Now he's going to kill himself. And I hate doing this because we're not supposed to. Just treat this speculatively. We all take the second commandment um, seriously, I think. We're not supposed to take God's name in vain. It's not for us to decide whether... But I want to ask this question speculating. Is Othello damned or not? He killed Desdemona. He kills himself. Um, he says... And when you think about this, I'd like you to compare Othello with uh, Judas. Because he's saying, remember the lines I just... 
of one whose hand like the base Judean threw a pearl away. That is his own soul. The pearl of price is our soul. And in, in Othello's case, it was his soul and, and in his mind, the only life of his soul was his love of Desdemona. So when, when by throwing that away, he threw Desdemona away, he was throwing away his soul. Now keep Judas in mind. Of one whose hand, like the base Judean, threw a pearl away, rather richer than all his tribe, of one whose subdued eyes, albeit unused to the melting mood, dropped tears as fast as the Arabian trees, their medicinal gum. He's not a man used to crying, but he wept here. Um, set you down this, and say besides that in Aleppo once, where a malignant and a turban <coughs> Turk beat a Venetian, introduced the state, I took by the throat, I took this Turk who defeated this Venetian, I took him by the, the throat, the circumcised dog, circumcised, entered the Jewish Christian world, and smote him thus, he kills himself. Now before that, just remember this, this is line 260, he just kills Desdemona and he says, behold, I, uh, he's warning Graziano off because um, they left him to, to go after Iago. He's got a weapon, he says to Graziano, don't, I'm not going to kill you. He's got, he's, he, nobody could defeat this great soldier, nobody. He couldn't be defeated. Behold, I have a weapon, a better never did uh, itself sustain upon a soldier's thought. I have seen the day that with this little arm and this good sword, I have made my way through more impediments than 20 times your stock. But O oh, vain boast, who can control his fate? Tis not so now. There's nothing for Graziano to worry. He's not going to kill him. It's, um, Othello's life is over. What's his fate now? He's contemplating the meaning of his life and the end of it here. Be not afraid, though you do see me weapon. Here is my journey's end. I've only got two minutes left, so just to read this and I'm done. Here's my butt, the very sea mark of my utmost sail. Do you go back dismayed? Tis a lost fear. Don't worry. Man, but a rush against Othello's breast and he retires. Where should Othello go? Now how dost thou look now, O ill-starred wench? Pale is thy smock. He's looking at Desdemona. When, when we shall meet at Compte, this look of thine will hurl my soul from heaven and fiends will snatch at it. Cold, cold, my girl, even like chastity. O cursed, cursed slave, whip me, ye devils, from the possession of this heavenly sight. Beauty of Desdemona. Blow me about in winds. Roast me in sulfur. Wash me in deep down gulfs of liquid fire. O Desdemona, dead, Desdemona, dead. So he... he He's contemplating the two of them and his sight of her sending him to hell. And his long for end is to be whipped by these devils. So this is the state of Othello at the end, and you, and you know that... He, go ahead, I'm sorry. Um, the, the magistrates are saying, take Iago and Othello off to jail. We'll figure out the punish, punishment for Iago because Iago's done all of this stuff. Um, there's a serious question where Othello really believes that he'll be let off because if he goes to court, the people are going to say, this is all worked on by Iago because he says, extenuate nothing. But instead of being let off to jail, he takes his life. So this is the state of Othello. He wants to be punished in hell. He's going to be taken off, um, but rather than let it happen, he, he has this lines and then he takes his life. So my question, is he damned? And I know we're not 
you know, but, but I, I want to put it at its highest because I really want to, I really want to take time because I think this is an extraordinary play. Is he damned for taking Desdemona's life or even for his own? I don't want to, next time we meet, next week we'll, we'll start, we'll just take a little bit of time to answer these questions and then we'll start um, Anthony and Cleopatra. Tony and Cleo. Hmm? Tony and Cleo. Tony and Cleo. I like that. <laughs> But does he repent? Even if he does. You guys have a safe trip. Safe trip. Okay.